Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always. So glad, my friends, that you're tuning into another episode. Today is podcast 63, and the title is Getting Rid of Sin. So today we're going to be tackling Matthew 18, 7 through 14, and cross-referencing Mark 9, 38 through 50, and Luke 9, 49 and 50. So as usual, you know, as we're going through a chronological teaching, sometimes we jump around and you touch on a lot of different issues related to the different biographies to kind of get a holistic, better understanding of what actually occurred. So leading up to this point, if you've missed any previous podcasts, you can always go to standstrawministries.org, click on podcast. All of the archives are there with our study note. So with that being said, let's jump right into it because we got a lot to cover. And so the, as you could tell by the title, the main thing that we really want to focus in on is what does Jesus have to say about sin and how can we remove, if you will, more of it in our lives? Now, bring us up to speed. Last podcast in podcast 62, we talked about the debate that the disciples had about who was the greatest. This is where we pick things up from that point on. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Mark chapter 9 just to kind of give you a little account of that. And then I'm going to jump back to Matthew 18 and Luke 9. In verse 38, Mark 9 says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we have tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, one of the interesting things that Matthew throws in in this account is these words in verse 7 of Matthew 18, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And he says in verse 12, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, so let's just jump right into Mark chapter 9. Here in verses 38 through 41, notice that John approaches Jesus and he refers to him as teacher. And he's saying, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, here's what's interesting. John comes to Jesus. He's with the appointed spokesperson for whatever reason. And after Jesus just scolded them and used a child to humble them and say, you guys have to be more like this child instead of being so self-centered, they take 
take the focus now off of themselves and they put it on someone else. And they're now looking at someone who's trying to be like them. And in their mind, they're thinking, look, we didn't even give any permission because that term, he was not following us. It literally means in the Greek, not one of us. So meaning he was not one of us. We did not call him to be like us. We didn't give him permission to do what he's doing. Jesus had just told the disciples that you are to serve people in my name. And now they're saying, well, you got people out there that are doing things in your name and they don't have permission. Isn't that interesting how you go from being confronted with a particular sin then to use a different form of sin to basically kind of undermine that type of sin. And this is what's happening with John. And I believe just given the teaching that we've been going through, that this is really circulating among the disciples. Well, notice what Jesus says in return to them. He says, don't stop him. See, Jesus is calling out the disciples' exclusivism by encouraging them to receive other fellow believers. The message that Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples is not to divide, but to unite. And he emphasizes this by saying, give them a cup of water to drink, meaning the smallest acts of service, the smallest acts of kindness can go a long way. Now, one commentator wrote, we must accept the success of others humbly and rejoice in it, as Paul did in Philippians 1.18. No work done for Christ will go unrewarded. And now here in Matthew 18, 7, where Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You think this is an interesting phrase. Why does Jesus say this after the response of John about this apparent disciple of his who was casting out demons? Well, what's interesting about this phrase is what Jesus is pointing out now. Remember, he went from your self-centeredness, thinking you're great, to then calling out John and saying, don't stop people that are using my name to do the work that I've called them to do that are outside the 12 of you. He now confronts them with a world of temptation. There are things around you guys that you're not even aware of right now that's consuming you. And if you do not become aware of these things, and if you don't deal with them, if you don't address them, they're going to destroy you. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But this phrase here, woe to the world for temptations to sin, Jesus is telling the disciples that they need to, again, recognize that there are these temptations and he's telling them that there are going to be roadblocks in the world. Punishment will fall upon people who uh, fall into these various forms of temptation. And not only that, but also lead others into these various forms of temptation. It's not going to just make life miserable for the people that are leading them astray, but the people you think about who are being led astray. So that's why Jesus then goes back when you see what Mark is mentioning in verse 9. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Literally in Greek is Gehenna to the unquenchable fire. Now, of course, you're not to take this literally. What Jesus was doing here is he was speaking in hyperbole to make a point. And the point was this, sin will destroy you. It will lead you to death. One commentary writes, the verb cause to sin is scandalisi, which is where we get our word, obviously, scandal from. It must be understood from a future judgment viewpoint. It refers to enticing or provoking a disciple to turn away from Jesus, resulting in serious spiritual damage. So Jesus starts with the hand. And when you think of the hand in this hyperbolic way of him making a point in, in spiritual damnation. So notice Jesus uses the hand, he uses a foot, and now he uses the eye to draw out this point. Now, why the eye? While the eye has great symbolism in Judaism, matter of fact, it's stated in rabbinical literature that much is recognized by looking into a Jew's eye. So what Jesus is saying is when you look upon something, you reach for it and to go reach for it, you walk to it. So Jesus says you're not to live in sin. And then he quotes from Isaiah 66, verse 24, this phrase, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, 
I got to be honest with you. It's probably one of the worst phrases, if you will, to be injecting in this particular context. He's already using hyperbole. And then he uses this reference. And in, in essence, Isaiah, this, this reference that Jesus is using in this context is he's actually referring to corpses. And there are people that are dead who rejected God. So it seems weird, but what Jesus is really driving home to his disciples is he's warning them of coming destruction if you don't get your life in order. He's providing them a vivid picture of not just death, my friends, but he's giving them a vivid picture of hell and one is unending torment. So now he, in verse 49 of Mark 9, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. So what he's now getting at is this metaphor. It goes, remember, hyperbole to this metaphoric approach now, speaking about purification by using salt. And now this is important for numerous reasons. We know in the course of scripture from Jesus's teaching later into the New Testament that Christians are to be the salt of the earth. Literally, that just means being witnesses of Christ who preserve his truth in the world. And we know that we will face fiery trials. That's the term fire here. He says everyone will be salted with fire. So we see these trials that come. They're going to make us stronger. They're going to grow us in our faith according to 1 Peter 1, 7, 4, 12. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So in verse 50, when he says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, literally become saltless, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So salt was a necessity, right, in ancient life. And if salt became savorless, it would be tossed out. So likewise, what Jesus is saying is to his disciples is that you must remain pure. You must remain faithful to your calling. In Matthew 5, 13, Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Luke 14, 34 and 35, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, one thing that's also interesting that you don't hear much about when it comes to salt is that salt was sometimes even used in covenants. In Numbers 18, verse 19, it reads, whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offsprings. So yes, not only is salt used in terms of preservation, not only is it used as a witness to bring truth, but also salt is used in covenants. We also see this in 2 Chronicles 13 verse 5. So that's very important. We know that if salt were to lose its flavor, it's tossed out. Well, the cool thing is when you actually look in Judea in ancient times and how they utilized salt, genuine salt could not lose its saltiness. Though there were certain impure salt deposits in Judea that the Judeans knew about it. So what he's saying is hypothetically, if it were, it's, it's worthless. That's the point. And so we as Christians, what Jesus is saying is, if you don't get rid of sin, if you don't deal with sin in your life, you are worthless because the sin in your life is going to destroy you. It's going to kill you. It's going to rot in you. That is how powerful this statement is in scripture right now that Jesus is having with his disciples. A lot of times we kind of give a lot of weight to the greatness level of where the disciples are at in, in, in their stature and their position. And yet this is such a big open rebuke that Jesus is talking about. And so now when you see here in Matthew 18 verse 10, we know when we go back to Matthew, he says, see that you do not despise, literally look down on one of these little ones. Now let's pause. 
How does he go from using hyperbole to now addressing little ones? Remember, let's go back to the child when he was talking about greatness. Let's go back to the disciple that the disciples confronted and said, you can't do this. And Jesus says, hey, support him, show acts of kindness. Now what he's referring to is again, the second greatest commandment and how you treat others. Jesus warns his disciples not to be unkind or to belittle another fellow believer. And notice his other key phrase in verse 10 of Matthew 18, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Man, see, this is another strange phrase used by Jesus. What does he mean? Remember, Jews believed each nation had guardian angels. You see this in Daniel 10, 13 and verse 20 and Daniel 12, verse 1. Now, some commentaries interpret this to mean individuals are assigned their own angel by God. For example, in Hebrews 1, 14, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So it's just kind of interesting that Jesus is using angels in the context of referring to these little ones. And I think just as a side note, that it shows you the guardianship. It shows you the power. It shows that we may think these people are nobodies. We may think that people are less than us when in fact God is doing great work in them and around them. Now, before we look at Matthew 18, 12 through 14, I do want to reference a little bit more regarding angels. And to do that, I want to refer to a book I wrote with Dr. Norman Geiser called The Bible's Answers to 100 of Life's Biggest Questions. Now, question 41, we look into who are angels and what do they do? Number one is that they serve and they praise God. We see that in Psalm 103, Psalm 148. They execute God's judgments, as 2 Samuel 24 states. They act as messengers of God in Daniel 4, 17. As I mentioned earlier in the passage that we're talking about, they serve as guardians of people, Matthew 18, verse 10, and Hebrews 1, 14. And according to Genesis 3, 22 through 24, they protect God's glory. But one thing we have to understand about angels is although they are spirit beings, they are not infinite like God. They are created beings. And the last thing about angels, which is so fascinating, is the role they played in the redemptive plan for the world. Gabriel came to Mary. He revealed himself to Joseph and he gave him a dream of Herod's deadly plot. You see angels coming to the aid of Jesus, not just in the wilderness, but in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. They announced his resurrection. They are there when the women came to the tomb. So we are not to underestimate the power, the beauty of angels and I have to say, friends, not to underestimate that there are constant protection and visitation by angels all over the world. And we need to be sensitive to that. We see that portrayed throughout scripture. And so before we just moved any further, I just wanted to kind of give a theological understanding into angels. And so that's referenced in my Q&A book. So you could take a look at that. You can Google it, go to Amazon. So I just thought that was important to mention. Now, before we conclude this podcast, we just got to look at these last few verses in Matthew 18, 12 through 14. And Jesus poses this question. He says, what do you think? So after all the things he said that we are compiling from Mark and then little reference there is in Luke and then here in Matthew, Jesus ends this whole conversation with, with his disciples by asking him a question, what do you think? And then he gives him a little parable. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. For it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This, my friends, is fantastic. It is so magnificent because John comes to him and he's attacking an individual and he thinks he has a right to do it. And Jesus goes full circle 
And notice in the end, he says, it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I want you to think of the people in your life, my friends. Think of some people that you've been taking for granted that maybe perhaps you've even overlooked. Maybe in some type of community or some kind of support capacity or friendship level, whatever. Why do we tend to overlook the small things the little things. I just said that we need to be a little bit more sensitive when it comes to the presence of angels and the protection and the guardianship that they bring in our lives. And remember, the whole message here is not just being unkind to people or overlooking people or not seeing the, the speciality, if you will, or the uniqueness of certain people. We tend to sometimes overlook because we're so fixated on ourselves. So Jesus closes out this message to the disciples by giving them this parable to stress the point of how much God cares for just one person. And if God shows this kind of love for one who is lost, then we too, my friends, must strive to show this kind of love to others. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He writes, quote, the first temptation is to despise one because it's only one. The next is to despise one because that one is so little. The next and perhaps the most dangerous form of the temptation is to despise one because that one has gone astray, end quote. I think it's well said by Spurgeon, the point being this, Sometimes it's easy for us to retaliate or to be unkind because of the unkindness of others or the difficulty of others. Right now, my wife and I have been praying for some recent people in our life who are going through a particular struggle with a loved one, and they're finding it very difficult to endure through many of the issues related to this person's sins. Now, as much as they love this person, they're admitting now that they're running out of patience, and they're really running out of forgiveness and mercy. And so they're really seeking the Lord for that, and perhaps that really speaks to you. And that's the point, is that God shows His mercy and His kindness by going after the one who is led astray. Sometimes those are the people who are the most difficult, but what God is is reminding us is his love is far greater. So my friends, I pray that this message has helped you to examine the sin in your own life and remember to pluck it out, to get rid of it before it grows anymore. So if you have any sin in your life, anything that is crippling you, is leading you astray, confess it before God. Get right with him. And my friends, I pray that when you do that, that your heart will be purified, that you could be that salt that God has called you to be in the culture. So with that, thank you for tuning in. I love you guys. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friend. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.